Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Banter Podcast, episode 32. This is your host, Ben Cohen. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Luciano. Mike, my friend, how are you this week? Oh, Ben, I'm ready. It's the day you have been waiting for. For months and months and months, you have tried to inject polls as a centerpiece of our podcast, but I have resisted because generally I try not to pay attention to them until after the first presidential debate we have had the first presidential debate like a couple of weeks ago, and I am finally ready for it. So, Ben, whatever polls you want to discuss, presidential, Senate, there are some house races that I could talk about. I'm so ready for it. I, this is like music to my ears, Mike. I've been desperately trying to bring up the polls at every, at, at every minute of every podcast we've ever done. I'm sitting there with a whole load of tabs open on my desktop with detailed polls of all the states in play in the Senate and for the presidential election. So this is music to my ears. Uh, this is going to be my favorite podcast. Epi- you can bookmark this one, everyone. Episode 32 is uh, uh, Ben Cohen's favorite podcast because Mike finally, finally decides to look at the polls. But before we get into the polls, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm I'm delaying this so we can talk about, we, we've got a couple of other things to talk about before we get onto the polls, which um, are, first of all, what were supposed to be debates, but um, instead, because Trump pulled out of the second presidential debate, we had two town halls. And um, it, I, I must confess, I didn't see all of either of them out out of part of this is actually to do with with sanity uh, my own sanity that i just can't bring myself to watch trump um being interviewed for more than about 10 minutes at a time i've you know done my research i've i've looked at you know uh, the most relevant parts of the town hall uh, and and same with the Biden um, town hall as well. F- frankly, I'm not that interested in discussing the performance of either of them. Uh, I, my opinion was that Biden did a good job and Trump was deranged as usual. But there is a bigger scandal here. There is a big. There is something bigger here. Uh, what what was first of all, Mike? What was your take on the on the on each each of the town halls? Absolutely the same as yours. I had Biden on the big screen TV and I had. Trump on the small screen on my computer because he is a teeny tiny man. And Biden was fine. He was totally fine. He was even very good at certain points. And meanwhile, Trump, 15 minutes into it, uh, I was like, this is the same shtick. This is the same stuff. There's no new message. You know, Hunter Biden, Burisma, and just all of this just totally lying. At one point, he said 85% of people who wear masks get COVID. Just complete nonsense. And I was like, this is, I can't do this. So I just kind of tuned out on that one for a while and listened to Biden. And I was like, trying to remember what it was like to have a president that was a normal person and someone you didn't have to think about. Someone who, you know, you could go an entire day and forget that there's a president of the United States, which is a nice, which is a nice thing to think about. But shame on NBC for doing this. Yes, shame on NBC. That was disgraceful. The, the Biden town hall had already been scheduled for Thursday night on ABC, and then NBC somehow comes up with this arrangement where they're going to have their own town hall on NBC and MSNBC and CNBC at the same exact time. And it's tough to read that as anything other than a cynical ploy for ratings. But there is some good news because just before we got on, the final 
numbers came out in terms of the viewership for these town halls. These are the final total numbers. The Joe Biden town hall checked in with 13.9 million viewers. The Trump town hall checked in with 13 million. So Biden's town hall beat Trump's by a million. Not that this is important. <laughs> Not that this is important because it isn't, but we know how much Trump loves to tout his ratings. Well, he can't tout the ratings here. And I just hope that if anything, if this NBC town hall that gave Trump a platform to spout more nonsense for an hour on national TV, if there is a silver lining in that, hurting Trump's ego is it. By all accounts, this was a, this was then a spectacular disaster for Trump. So he lost in the ratings. People still think he's a complete dickhead. He did not absolutely nothing to swing the race in in any way. He was bragging that NBC was giving him a free hour of time, which he wasted completely talking about nonsense the entire time. You know, again, not that I didn't watch the entire thing. Uh, again, I want to make that clear that I didn't, I, I couldn't, I literally just physically couldn't watch the, the thing. But, you know, the highlights of the show were him talking about all the stuff that nobody's interested in, as, as you pointed out. So he's lost in the ratings and he his message uh, didn't resonate with anybody. So, yeah, failure, complete and utter failure for Trump again. And uh, yeah, look, NBC, the NBC thing was uh, was a disgrace, really. You know, I think this, you know, really this just show this really does highlight the need for Americans to to choose alternatives to the corporate media, corporate media news system, which is, look, it's what we've got right now. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a pr- doing its job kind of this time around. It's doing a better job than it did in 2016. I thought in 2016, uh, the, the the mainstream media essentially gave Trump like thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of of free airtime to just spout complete and utter bullshit uh, without fact checking him. They did the whole sort. They turned the whole presidential contest into a horse race, you know, where it's all you know. Hillary says this, but Trump says that. You know, both sides disagree. I think the media has got a little bit better this time around. I think now that the existential threat of Trump is so severe. Um, that even the sort of, you know, corporate America has had enough, right? They've realized that this guy, even though he might in the short term be quite good for for ratings or the stock market, you know, you're going to get sugar highs from the stock market. But long term, this guy is a complete disaster. So the the entire sort of, the organs of the American economy are, are and they're decidedly against Trump. Um but that being said, you know you kind of expect a bit more from M- NBC. This is, that is supposedly uh, it's it staked out its territory as a kind of a, a more left leaning political network, and and in this it just I mean what what were they thinking? What what were they thinking? This guy has has insulted, denigrated, called your network fake news, attacked all the reporters on Twitter relentlessly why why give this guy free airtime on your network it's it's just it's insane you know and a lot of the nbc staffers were absolutely outraged by this <clears throat> and and rightly so i don't think there's going to be any ramifications or any any um you know anyone's going to lose their job over this but it it was yeah it was yeah not what you need 18 days out from the election is to be giving this moron free airtime just to i mean i don't really see the point in in, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think I'm a bit more of a sort of an extremist on this, and I just think that why give this guy airtime for anything? He just lies about everything. He does just lie. 
I think, you know, ratings is a factor. And, and when I tuned in, Joy Ann Reed's show was wrapping up. And her last words before sign off were, you don't need to know anything else about these two candidates to make an informed decision. So, and she didn't even mention the town hall. So the, the MSNBC on air talent, they, they didn't want to be anywhere near this. You know, Hayes had a sign off to Maddow on, I think it was Wednesday night. And he said, that's all for all in tonight. I won't be doing a show tomorrow. Uh, and the unspoken, <laughs> you know, the unspoken reason was because of this Trump town hall. He didn't even acknowledge it. And he had this really awkward handoff to, to Maddow. So that's what the anchors at MSNBC think of it. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a ratings ploy. And as I was watching it, I was just like, yeah, I've heard this all before. This is so redundant. He's a one trick pony. He's got nothing else. So, okay. Before we get to the polls, and this is the last thing I promise on Thursday, the confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett's uh, nomination ended. And Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, toward the end of those hearings, gave a double middle finger to every, not just progressive, but to every Democrat, every left-leaning person, every person who hates the fact that Republicans are a bunch of hypocrites by rushing through this nomination weeks before an election, after saying back in 2016 that nine months from an election was too close to fill a Supreme Court vacancy. Dianne Feinstein gave those people the stone-cold Steve Austin double bird on Thursday. First, she heaped praise on Lindsey Graham, who's the chair of the Judiciary Committee and ran these proceedings. And then afterwards, she gave him a maskless hug right there in the committee room. I have the audio right here. You got to listen to this. It's it's wretch inducing. Mr. Chairman, I just want to thank you. Uh, This has been one of the best set of hearings that I've participated in. And I want to thank you for your fairness and the opportunity of going back and forth It leaves one with a lot of hopes, a lot of questions, and even some ideas, perhaps some good bipartisan legislation we can put together to make this great country even better. So thank you so much for your leadership. (sighs) Okay. Oh, dear. I'm going to try to temper my frustration, anger, Because, Ben, as you pointed out before we got on this podcast, Dianne Feinstein is 87 years old, but I just have to get this off my chest. These comments are gross and totally untethered to reality, and it shows that Feinstein is absolutely off somewhere else. She's doing politics from another era, calling these hypocritical hearings some of the best hearings, thanking him, thanking Lindsey Graham for his fairness, and that she said it leaves her with a, a lot of hope for passing bipartisan legislation when we've got the obstructor-in-chief, Mitch McConnell, leading Senate Republicans. I, this is just completely gone. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Feinstein should not run again in 2024 because that's when her term is up. But if she does run again, if I'm her primary opponent, that clip that we just played would be my main political ad against her. Just play that clip. 
which is exactly 30 seconds long. So it's the perfect length for a TV spot. Just run that over and over. And when people ask, and I'll joke a little bit here, and you and Ben, you you can criticize me for being mean, but if I'm challenging her in a primary and people ask, what's your platform? Uh, my platform is that Diane Feinstein is older than Larry King. She's not. She's going to be 91 years old at that point, and I, I do not think the Democratic Party should be in the business of Strom Thurmonding candidates that they that have just been there forever and just keep on voting for them for the sake of because they've been there forever. Strom Thurmond served in the Senate till he was a hundred and he didn't know where he was. So I hope Democrats, if Feinstein runs, have the wherewithal to pick somebody who knows what is going on, who knows what the Republicans are up to. And look, Feinstein's not alone on this. Plenty of other Democrats don't grasp, you know, the fact that Republicans are playing by a completely different set of rules. This isn't necessarily an age thing, but there's something to be said for getting new blood into the bloodstream. And I think Democrats have reached that point in California with Dianne Feinstein. It was a, it was a very very sort of um, cringe inducing moment, uh, you, you know. Uh, one that I personally will let slide because of her age. I just think you know that was she's around the age. My, my grandmother uh, who passed uh, last year was eighty nine. You know, sim- similar kind of an age. Uh, and my grandmother was in no state for the for the previous probably five six seven years before then to do much at all you know i'm not saying that all people i'm not saying that you know after the age of 80 that's it but i think that um you know there's shown to be fairly significant cognitive decline after the age of 80 i think it's after the age of i forget what it is but there's there's a lot of data on on uh, when cognitive decline really starts to settle in and it's uh, you know when you once you're well into your 80s it's it's certainly there um and i think that you know, it's not that's not necessarily true for everyone, but it's true for the majority of people. Um, and I think that Feinstein clearly that moment did sort of reveal that okay, she doesn't really understand what's happening, right? Number one, and number two, she doesn't really understand what Lindsey Graham is as well. I mean, Lindsey Graham is is perhaps the most reprehensible of all of the Republicans um, uh, currently, other than Mitch McConnell in the Senate. And I'd even say that he's, you could argue that he's worse than Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's a bastard, but he doesn't pretend to be anything other than a bastard. Lindsey Graham, on the on the other hand, has, has sold himself as this bipartisan figure who gets on with everybody who's respectful and, uh, you know, he, he's, the, he's the sane one he's the kind of he represents the senate um for what it used to be whereas in fact he doesn't he's a he's a trump henchman you know he's a stooge um and a sellout and a grifter and a liar and you know he is uh one of the reasons he's given political cover to trump for the past four years you know he's basically sold his entire career out for trump's benefit and for that he should go down as one of the worst senators in history a shameful kind of clown who um, sold his soul for short-term political gain. So the fact that Feinstein doesn't seem to un- understand that 
is, is a, for me it's a, look maybe it's a sign that you know that, that uh, politically she's just not aware but I you know I'm inclined to think that she you know she's just too old for this you know and it's time for her to go and um, yeah you, you know any Democrat now who thinks I, what we want now what I want at least are I want fighters on the Democrat side I don't want we, let's reach across the aisle and do business no we can do business once you know once the Supreme Court has been um, expanded you know we can do business once the filibuster is gone we can do business and reach across the aisle uh you know once um uh gerrymandering has been uh, uh eliminated or reversed we th- this there are so many things that need to happen before we can even consider being respectful towards republicans again that that's just not what's needed right now you know we're in a we're in a war this is a this is a, a, a kind of a, a this is just as serious the ramifications of this political fight are just as serious as that of the civil war and and it's a winner takes all in my opinion you know and and feinstein is not it's not um she's not fighting she's not a fighter uh as far as i'm concerned you know yeah please go please go indeed all right now that we've gotten that off our chests i think it's time don't you so this the moment i've been waiting for i got a i got a whole bunch of things i want to say about the senate races but ben why don't you just lead us in a discussion about how the presidential race is going for the president? Well, uh, badly, uh, very badly. <laughs> you know, look, the, the, the argument that you and I have had o- over the time, over the past sort of year, has been, you know, your your opinion has been that um, the polls don't mean anything. I don't trust the polls uh, because of what happened no, last time. No, 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 no. Don't represent what. <laughs> well, okay. You know, perhaps not that extreme, but you have said, you know, this is what the poll said last time. This is like, I'm not buying no. it. But understandably, I would say that your position is completely understandable, right? And I think that there is a there is a tendency for the political classes to overanalyze polls uh, and, and take them far too seriously, not really taking into consideration that, you know um, what we did in 2016—that there can be ground movements and intangibles that that uh, affect races in ways that we can't really see—and um, I get that, and I buy that, and I think that you. I'm not saying that I've been right. I've just, you know, I, I, I have um, partly I've been obsessing over polls because, you know, to make myself feel better. Because <laughs> obviously, I've been living li- like everybody else, been living in this nightmare for the last four years. So looking for any positive signs that Biden's going to win this. Um, and you know, the further out you are for an election, I think the, the the less meaningful polls are. But as you get closer and closer to the election the polls become far more important that's been my point all along so that's what i've said all along like the that's why i said you know i generally don't pay attention to polls until like late september october because you know a lot can happen over the the course of a campaign so it's never i've never said that like polls are meaningless and 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 polls you know like in 2016 you know the closer we okay all right the closer we got to that election, the closer we got to, to the general election, the tighter they started to get, both nationally and on the state level. So that was my my beef. Not that polls are are wrong or bad or worthless or anything like that. I just caution against focusing on them from too far out from an election. I will say that you have brought up the 2016 election uh, about the trustworthiness of polls. 
I will say that, that, that you have that certainly, and I think that that's legitimate, you know, I think that's legitimate, but I also think that, um, the, the there are two things, right? First of all, that the, the polls 2016 weren't actually that wrong. They were well within the margin of error, uh, particularly 538's model. All of, all of the, the final results for the 2016 election were within, uh, the margin of error, um, for, for all the states that went to Trump. Uh, they were all, you know, they were at the, at the edge of the margin of error, but within the margin of error. So there's that, number one. Number two, I do think that polls can, even quite far out, they can tell you something. They can tell you what are danger signs. What are danger signs for each of the candidates, right? How are they polling with women? How are they polling with, you know, educated voters, white educated voters? How are they polling with, you know, the suburbs? How are they polling with Latino men? Those kind of things, right? Those kind of things can tell you, like, the mood at that particular... It's a snapshot in time, right? But it can give you a sort of a picture of what of of trends, right? And what a, a candidate will need to do to address those trends. So I think particularly with Trump, that he's been showing very, 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 very... Uh, troubling. There have been lots and lots of red flags over the past six, seven months, right? Particularly after the coronavirus, right? That he was ignoring various sort of uh, sectors of the population that he absolutely needed to win uh, in in November, and he's been ignoring them. And you look each week, like, is he addressing that? Is he doing anything that's going to, you know, is there any sort of coherent strategy? coming from the Trump campaign to try and address any of these uh, deficits that he might be experiencing. And I think that the long-term picture over the past, probably over the past year, is that the guy has done nothing. It's a strategic disaster since the presidential polling started, um, since Biden became the nominee um, in particular, that this is, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very bad. Um, and he hasn't addressed some glaring holes in his, um, you know, in, in, in the coalition that Trump would would have needed to have built to compete with Biden. He, he hasn't done that. And the polls have have sort of been a predictor of that. That's all I would say. I agree with you that you can kind of get a sense of the sentiment of those certain you know, certain demographics early on. I, I think maybe there's something to be said for that. But just overall, you, you got to wait till you got to wait till like September, at least, you know, because I, I've brought up the example before of Dukakis being up like 18 points or 17 points or whatever it was nationally as late as like late July. And it just completely reversed. Um, just a lot can happen over the course of a few months, but we don't have to worry about a few months. We only have to worry about a couple of weeks at this point. And the polls for the president are not good. Um, he is trailing in all of the swing states that he needs to win, or or almost all of them. If you look at Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, he has consistently pulled behind Joe Biden. And of course, those are the three states that won him the election. If Hillary had won those three states, she would be president of the United States. But she didn't. But Trump is behind in those places. And not only is he behind in those states, he has been behind in Florida, right? So he's been behind in, you know, some polls are showing a very close race in North Carolina. Some have Biden ahead in Georgia. 
Some have Biden competitive in Texas. So, I mean, the, the, the path to victory for Donald Trump is extremely narrow because Biden, he could lose some of the states that Hillary lost. He could, he could lose Michigan, right? He could lose Wisconsin. But if he gets Florida and, say, Arizona, which is another one where it looks like Joe Biden is going to win, if he gets Florida and Arizona, that's it. So, and he could lose those three Midwestern states that Hillary lost. It won't matter. So the, the number of ways Biden can win this race are far more numerous than the number of ways Trump can win. And it just, I mean, any state you want, pick any state, you know, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, there are polls showing, uh, you know, Biden ahead in Iowa. Tr- the Trump campaign wanted to make a play for Minnesota because they narrowly lost Minnesota in 2016. But the polls out of Minnesota, I mean, Biden is consistently drubbing Trump there. And again, Biden is has he's been polling ahead in those in the Midwest, with the exception of Ohio. Ohio, it seems like it's going to be kind of a close race. But I wouldn't mind it if Biden won the election but lost Ohio. You know, so we could be done with this notion that we have to pander to Ohio as Democrats in order to win it because they voted. Ohio has voted for the winner of the presidential election in every in every one since like 1960, I think. So, yeah, yeah. but the map, the map, you know, the map has changed, you know, try, but, you know, who, Trump has changed the map. You know, it's, it's Trump that's done this. Trump has changed the map completely. Uh, you know, like, and, and as you say, you know, the pathway for victory for Trump looks very, very, very difficult. You know, um, I mean, I think all of them, he, yeah, he can, he can lose Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, and Georgia, and still win. He can lose, you know, that number of electoral votes and still win. So, yeah, the pathways to victory are just there. There are so many. That's why, on if you look at um, the five thirty eights, they're 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 simula- they're simulation, right? So what five thirty eight does is they run these electorals. Um, uh, they run they they simulate the election forty thousand times to see by 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 feeding in all of the polling data. Um, <clears throat> into their you know in their into their particular calculations and uh, they they see who wins the most often and in in out of the, those 100 so the sample of 100 outcomes Biden wins 87 of those out, of those outcomes right and and Trump wins in 13 so that just shows you what kind of a, a of a kind of a fluke that Trump is going to have to pull off what kind of a miracle that the guy's going to have to put off to win this every way that you slice it there's just no i don't see how this and it, but the thing is is that the race has been like this for a long time now right and that's what's been interesting about the polling is that the polling has been consistent the polling has been ab- incredibly um um uh, consistent over the over months and months and months and months and months trump has been unable to um uh i mean since june like if you look at the sort of national polling numbers right like they're closest in june where i think there was like a six percentage difference right and six percent is pretty significant and i mean and now there's a there's a there's a over eight over an eight point difference between the two two candidates, this is this is for the popular vote, um, and that's that that's a polling average, 
right? And I think that, you know, if you look at the polls as well, right, the way that they're weighted, they've taken into consideration what happened in 2016. So they, so the fact that the, the polls are, are um, probably weighted in favour of Trump to a degree, right? So, you know, there's a chance that this, this could be a total blow-up. It could be a complete whitewash. Um, and that wouldn't surprise me either. You know, look, I, I will be very surprised. I will be shocked if Trump wins, as I was in 2016. Um, but I will be more shocked this time around. Um, but I won't be shocked if Biden wins in a complete landslide, because that's entirely possible. Uh, and I don't see where, you know, what is, okay, here's a question, Mike. What does Trump do to turn this around? What is his, what is his strategy here? Looking at the poll numbers, you've looked at the poll numbers in depth. What does he do? It's something we've talked about on previous podcasts. This is the caveat to all this is he cheats is he has, you know, slowing down the mail. Uh, You have Trumper secretaries of state and governors fucking with the election somehow, you know, purging, purging voter rolls, shutting down precincts on, on election day. Perhaps you had in, in Texas, Greg Abbott, the governor, he said that there will only be one uh, ballot drop-off box per county, regardless of how many people are in said county, which means Harris County, the biggest county in Texas with 4.5 million people, includes Houston, has one drop-off box for ballots. That kind of thing. That's really his only chance of winning this thing is if is if there's election fuckery that's it he absolutely cannot turn this around on the level we saw it last night and we mentioned the town hall he's still playing his greatest hits from 2016 we're in season five of this nightmare and the writers are just recycling the same old shit and that's just not gonna fly so that really is the only thing that he can do to quote turn this around is by stealing it. And I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but that's what it is. And and they're already saying out loud, you know, one of their reasons for wanting Amy Coney Barrett on the bench like right now, they're saying it. They're Ted Cruz is saying it. And Trump is saying it. Like we need to have nine justices in the event that this election goes to the Supreme Court, they're already they're telegraphing their post-election plans. They know they can't win this on the level, so they're going to have to, you know, try to litigate it through the courts, call into question all kinds of ballots because Republicans are going to say all oh, these ballots shouldn't have been counted in this liberal state or in this swing state. You know, they're just going to throw all kinds of litigation at the wall, but they're going to have a problem. This could be something along the lines of the 2000 election where it all came down to Florida and the Supreme Court had to make a couple of rulings on on the recount. The Trump campaign's problem is they're going to be behind in multiple states. And it's going to look like that they are sore losers because they are going to, if they want to go this route, if they want any chance of winning this, they're going to have to go and they're going to have to challenge all kinds of things in all kinds of different states. And it, it's just going to look like that they're being sore losers. So if Biden wins Pennsylvania, they're going to probably have some type of legal action in Pennsylvania. Florida is going to be in Florida. Ohio, it's going to be in Ohio. Like wh- whatever it is, that's where the Trump campaign is going to send lawyers. And it's just going to be a bad look for them. Trump will try to paint it as some grand conspiracy, but the more states that he loses 
and tries to overturn the will of the people in those states through litigation, the worse it's going to look for him. It's going to look that he's relying on lawyers to win the election, essentially. And we know how the American people feel about lawyers. I actually, I wrote about this, uh, uh, we wrote in the banter brief and our roundup um, that goes out on Fridays about, about this. And I think, I think that the Senate, I think the Republicans are looking at these polls too, particularly um, Mitch McConnell. And I think they're looking at the poll numbers and they are thinking to themselves, we are basically fucked. These guys are not dummies. Mitch McConnell, as evil as he is, is not, is not a stupid man. And I think Mitch McConnell is looking at these numbers and thinking, okay, how, what do we do? How do we limit the damage here? I don't think that he's trying to ram through um, Amy Coney Barrett to help Trump in the general election. I think he's written that off. I think he knows it's gonna it's over. What he's doing instead, right? I mean, look look at what happened with the the sti- in the stimulus negotiations, right? The stimulus negotiations are basically telling that that tells you everything you need to know about what's happening right now. The stimulus negotiations on the, the Democrats proposed 2.2 trillion dollar second stimulus, right? The Trump administration said no to it. Uh, you know, because Trump was probably high on steroids or whatever it was, he was amped up on steroids and still suffering from the coronavirus. So Trump, uh, Trump said dismissed it, but then quickly came back to the table and said, "I know, actually, um, you know, here's a let's do a 1.8 trillion dollar uh, stimulus plan." Mitch McConnell said no to that. Right, Mitch McConnell said, "Well, you're not going to get the Senate to agree with you on this, so we're going to put forward a 500 billion dollar package, right? Which nobody wants, right? Nobody thinks it's a good idea. The Democrats dismissed it completely. The the White House has been trying to negotiate um, uh, with McConnell to for a bigger stimulus package, but McConnell's staying firm. He's offering nothing, right? But why is he doing?" McConnell is looking at the poll numbers and he's looking at the races and thinking like we can't win this right so what we need to do is we need to if Trump gets a second stimulus passed uh, before November third right this this is a boost to his 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 campaign this is a it, you know that would be a significant achievement if he managed to do that right and it gives him something to brag about. Uh, heading into the polls, you know, look, I got everybody a second stimulus, and you know, there's a big fat check with my name on it. So McConnell is basically not allowing him to do this, and McConnell like knows full well that the country's in dire need of a second stimulus. That we absolutely need more money being pumped into the economy right now. I mean, we're on the sort of if money, if help doesn't come soon. I mean, the, the number of evictions and the number of businesses that are about to go broke and bankrupt because of this. It, it, I mean, we're talking about uh, an economic meltdown here. And McConnell clearly understands this, but he. This is my guess is that McConnell is 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 betting that. Um, Trump gets kicked out of office, and then Biden's going to have to do a, a stimulus, right? So let's let's lump the stimulus um, on Biden, right? Let Biden go for a big one, and then blame the Democrats for running up the deficit, right? So he's kneecapping. He wants to kneecap Biden when Biden comes in, give him give him a shit economy, and make sure that he has to expend a lot of political capital getting a second stimulus passed. That's McConnell's tactic, right? And he's willing to fuck Trump on the way out. So Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are essentially they're helping Joe Biden get elected by holding up this stimulus. Like holding up the stimulus does nothing other than help Biden. And that's exactly what Senate Republicans are doing. Why? Because they're looking at the map and they're looking at the the polls and they're like, there's no way this is going to work. If they thought for a second that Trump could win this, 
right? If they genuinely thought he could win this, they'd be they'd be all over this second stimulus. This uh, second stimulus, they'd be doing, they'd be night and day trying to pass a second stimulus rather than trying to ram through uh, a conservative uh, Supreme Court justice. It occurs to me there's another way Trump could win, and it reminds me of an old quote from uh, former Louisiana governor. Uh, Edwin Edwards, I think his name was. He was running against who was he running against? Was he running against David Duke for governor? I think at the time, the the, the Grand Wizard of the KKK. Uh, he said, "There, the only way I lose this election is if I'm caught in bed with a dead woman or a live boy." So I feel like that's where Biden is at right now. But uh, so you mentioned uh, you mentioned Mitch McConnell and you mentioned the Senate. As you know, the Senate is a 53-47 Republican majority, which means Democrats can gain a majority by picking up a net of four seats. I mean, technically, they could afford to pick up a net of three seats, but Biden would have to win the White House so that in the event of a 50-50 tie, Vice President Kamala Harris would cast the tie-breaking vote. But obviously, you want to pick up as many seats as you can, uh, especially if you want to do bold things, because senators like Joe Manchin and the aforementioned Dianne Feinstein aren't going to be the ones leading the charge to say, end the filibuster, or pass the Green New Deal, or expand the judiciary. That might have to wait until after 2022, when the Senate map is just a nightmare for Republicans. I mean, it's no walk in the park for them this year, but it's it's just, it's bad for them. And, and I know I'm getting ahead of things here, but I just want to give the, the lay of the land in that respect. But I guess let's just kind of go through this, like, just kind of quickly race by race. There are two seats. There are only two seats. This is the good news that Democrats really need to worry about in terms of losing those seats. And, and the first is in Alabama and Doug Jones. And it just it does not look like Jones is going to be able to hold off uh, the Republican nominee, Tommy Tuberville, who is a former college football coach, which as far as I can tell, this is his only qualification for the job. He's basically been in college football for like 45 years. Jones has been down, he's been down double digits in the few polls that have been done since the summer. The thing about this race is Tuberville refuses to debate, and there's a good reason for that, which is he doesn't seem to know much. Uh, recently, he was asked in an interview where he stands on the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act is one of the most impactful pieces of federal legislation as far as the state of Alabama is concerned. And, and parts of this act were struck down by the Supreme Court in 2013, basically required certain southern states to get permission from the federal government to make changes in their voting laws. And he, so Tuberville was asked about this recently, and it was clear he had absolutely no idea what the Voting Rights Act was. It was like the first time he had ever heard of it. So that's the reason he's not debating, is that he doesn't really know anything about policy. And he's generally shied away from uh, what what could be tough interviews. But and despite that, I think this is a lost seat for the Democrats. Alabama is so deep red. I mean, Doug Jones, he needed to run against 
an accused pedophile, <laughs> right? And Roy Moore in that special election in 2017, and even though even then he only won by one or two points. So, so I think I think Doug Jones is is done for, unfortunately. And, and the other, just the other Democratic held seat to keep an eye on is in Michigan. Uh, Gary Peters is facing a, ja- a challenge from uh, a guy named John James. He's an Iraq War vet and a uh, a black Republican who's made a surprisingly strong showing. But every poll done since the beginning of October, and there's been a bunch of them, uh, every poll shows Peter's ahead anywhere by anywhere between um, one and ten points. So you get the sense that if the Democrats want to take the Senate, like Peter's is probably going to have to hold on to that seat, and it looks like he will. But that's it. Those are the only two seats that should give the Democrats any real concern in terms of the ones that they already hold. And so, you know, if Jones loses Alabama, that means Democrats would need to pick up five Republican held seats to get a clean 51 majority, uh, 51, 49 majority. That's assuming Peter's uh, hangs on in Michigan. But looking at these other races, there are three states where the Republican incumbent is in deep shit. Arizona. Colorado and Maine and Arizona. Ben, you might remember this months ago. I actually, (laughs) I actually predicted that Mark Kelly would beat Martha McSally, not for any polling reason or anything like that, but just because McSally is a terrible candidate. I I watched the last debate between the two of them and boy, does she stink out loud And, and the polls reflect that Kelly has led every poll in recent memory, Arizona itself looks like it's it's going to go for Biden, which will be good for down ballot Democrats like Kelly and uh, what's her uh, Tipper Nenny for the sixth district. She's looking to unseat Dave Schweikert there. Uh, but yeah, McSally, bad candidate, reminds me of another Martha who is a bad candidate. Reminds me of a, a a Republican version of Martha Coakley, and I know most people don't know who that is, but. Uh, for any Massachusetts Democrats out there listening, I'm sorry for uh, triggering your PTSD. So anyway, Arizona looks great for Democrats. Colorado, uh, Cory Gardner, he's in deep shit against John Hickenlooper, who, who was the former governor there. Most polls have consistently shown uh, Hickenlooper uh, ahead beyond the margin of error. So Colorado looks great. And then in Maine, you have Susan Collins, who... Uh, so often says she's, quote unquote, concerned about Trump's latest abomination uh, while she then doesn't do anything about it. Susan Collins should be very concerned about her reelection prospects. This is a, a senator in her three races for reelection since she got to the Senate. She won the Senate, her Senate seat in 1996. She's won them in absolute blowouts. I think two of them were by more than 30 points. And only a few years ago, it looked like we'd never be rid of her. But finally, we have a competitive race in Maine. And not only is it competitive, but things look bad for her because Sarah Gideon has been up in all of the polls for like the last month from anywhere between one and eight points. And granted, it's not the healthy margin we see for uh, Hickenlooper and Kelly. But right now, you would much rather be Sarah Gideon than Susan Collins. So so the cons- the Susan Collins concern level should be quite high right now. And to me, the, these three states are the most likeliest Democratic pickups. So in addition to these three, in addition to these three most likely Democratic flips, there are a 
bunch of toss-ups, and you have to imagine, again, provided that there's no Election Day fuckery, you have to imagine Democrats are going to pick up at least a couple of these. You have North Carolina, uh, Tom Tillis, he's the Republican incumbent, uh, he's facing Cal Cunningham, and that's that's what that's the one where people thought that the revelation a couple of weeks ago that Cunningham uh, had exchanged someone, yeah, yeah, the, the sex message scandal, the sexting scandal with a woman who wasn't his wife, and then she said they had an affair. That hasn't moved the needle at all because Cunningham still has consistently led Tillis in the polls, not by a whole lot, but. He has been leading. So I, I just I have to say, I would like to thank Donald Trump for lowering people's moral standards when it comes to evaluating candidates, because Republicans thought, oh, my God, this will surely sink Cal Cunningham. You know, the, the same Republicans who are like, yeah, we'll vote for the guy who had the affair with the porn star. We'll support him and cheated on like pretty much every wife he's had. Yeah, we'll vote for him. And yet the second the Democrat gets in hot water and the North Carolina Senate race, they're like, oh, my God, surely this will <laughs> this will disgust people. You know, like they can't remember like what they've been doing themselves for the last four years. So there's North Carolina, Iowa, Joni Ernst. Uh, she's been trailing Teresa Greenfield in all of the recent polls within the margin of error. So, you know, who knows what could happen there? But Iowa is very much in play. Montana, that's going to be close. Steve Bullock. And Steve Daines, it's it's been tight there. Steve Bullock, he's a popular governor there, and Daines is the incumbent. So all, all of them have been like one point, two points, stuff like that, if I recall correctly. Uh, so Montana, very well. Who knows? I mean, they could get a second Democratic senator, which is just weird to think about, but it's quite possible. Wait, so the one, the 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 ones in play, Georgia as well. That's that's. Uh... Did we talk much about Georgia? Right, Georgia. So Georgia, we've got two elections. David Perdue, Republican incumbent, against John Ossoff. And the polls have been kind of all over the place in this one, like Ossoff up, up one, Perdue up four, Ossoff up three, that kind of deal. And remember, this is Georgia. So if no candidate gets a majority of the votes in this Senate election, it goes to a runoff election between the top two vote getters. And Based on the polling, it's far from clear that either one of these guys will be able to get 50% plus one to avoid a runoff. So keep an eye out for that. The other race in Georgia, that's the special election where we will most definitely have a runoff. The incumbent, Kelly Leffler, she was appointed to fill the seat of the retiring Johnny Isaacson, uh, who resigned from the Senate last year. Under Georgia law, there must be a special election even after that appointment if the term doesn't naturally expire, uh, which it doesn't until 2022. So this is the one where there are a whole bunch of candidates on the ballot, multiple Democrats, multiple Republicans, that sort of thing. And you might recall a couple of podcasts ago, I was ripping one of the Democratic candidates, Matt Lieberman. Uh, yes, that's the son of uh, droopy dog Joe Lieberman for not dropping out of the race, despite the fact that he's been polling in the single digits and has no chance of winning or no has no chance of finishing in the top two and could spoil top two finish for the leading Democrat, Raphael Warnock. Well, good news on that front. Warnock is now comfortably in first. 
Uh, he hasn't polled at a majority. I don't think anyone is going to by the time this is over, but he's been polling in the 30s and even the low 40s while Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins have been splitting the Republican vote. But Lieberman should definitely drop out along with uh, there's another Democrat in the race. I think his name is Tarver. They're both long shots. You know, any chance that Warnock has of getting a majority on election day, you know, anything that can be done to get him that majority should be done. And so Lieberman and and Tarver should drop out of the race and endorse Warnock. And, uh, you know, it's 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 not done yet. It, it's not over yet for the seats that the Republicans have to defend against. There's Alaska, which has out of nowhere become competitive. I mean, this was not on anyone's radar. Dan Sullivan could be in a spot of trouble here. He He's running up against uh, challenger Al Gross, who is running as an independent, who ha- would caucus with the Democrats if he beats Sullivan. We've had five polls on this race since the summer, and the gaps in all five fall within the margin of error. And I actually watched their last debate. And my favorite part of the debate was the contrast, uh, the contrast of the backdrop that each candidate had, because it was a virtual debate and you had Senator Dan Sullivan. He was wearing a a button up shirt and uh, he was basically in an office, you know, looking like Mr. Politician. And Al Gross played a different game. He went out to his backyard and he was wearing like this outdoorsman's jacket. So you had basically a forest as his backdrop and he's got this big, deep voice and he's talking about mining and, and fishing and the ferry situation, Alaska, all of these things that the rest of us don't even have to think about because Alaska politics is a very different beast. So watch out for Al Gross. And then I, I think that's, that's he's looking good. Yeah. And, and you even yeah, have I mean, I mean, Kansas, Kansas, this is, this is the last one. I think the Democrats have a, have a shot at this is crazy. for the seat of uh, Pat Roberts, who's retiring and the race is actually competitive. There hasn't been a lot of polling on this, but the, the last one showed the Democrat Barbara Bollier, Bollier ahead of um, Roger Marshall, the Republican by, uh, let's see, four points. And I don't want to get my hopes up too much here because this is Kansas, and Kansas hasn't sent a Democrat to the U.S. Senate since the 1930s, if you can believe that. But this is definitely a race to watch. So those are the ones that are in play for the Democrats. There are other ones that Democrats have been touting like, oh, my God, we could win in these places. But I think they're getting their hopes up a little bit too much. One is Mississippi. Uh, I mentioned earlier how uh, Tuberville in Alabama refused to do any debates. That's that's has been Cindy Hyde Smith's strategy in Mississippi. So she's the incumbent, and she similarly does not know a whole lot, and so she doesn't want to go into a debate. And Ben, I have to I have to get your reaction to this. She she was asked she was asked why she wasn't agreeing to any debates, which is a staple of electoral politics in the United States. And so here's what Cindy Hyde Smith had to say about debates. Debates are a topic that losing candidates and reporters care about. Mississippians want to know that I'm doing the job I was elected to do. And that's what we've been traveling the state talking about. Hyde Smith's camp said the continued calls for a debate from Espy, that's her challenger, Mike Espy, are, quote, desperation. While Hyde Smith considered the favorite to win, the most recent poll showed Hyde Smith with just a one-point lead. And I'm a little skeptical of that poll. But, Ben, I have a question. 
Are debates a topic that only losing candidates and reporters talk about or care about? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, given, listen, given uh, Donald Trump was so desperate to debate Trump, uh, sorry, was given, you have to edit that one, given Donald Trump was so desperate to debate Joe Biden for, um, you know, for the, November election. I think you've got to say, yeah, it probably has to be, right? You know, look, <laughs> it is for losers, right? Like, uh, uh, only losers want debates, apparently. Um, no, look, I think, uh, right, like, Donald Trump wanted wanted to debate Biden because it was his last, literally last shot at uh, flipping the election uh, around in that case. So, yeah, you know, Trump, Trump is clearly a loser. But, um Obviously, you know, this is like, as Trump also said, that a debate is basically free airtime, right? It's free airtime. This is when you get to send your message to the American people. Um, And if you're not really out for a debate, uh, then it kind of shows that uh, you don't really have any ideas and you're not confident in your ability to articulate your ideas. So, uh, yeah, not exactly a sort of an inspiring um, uh, answer. Exactly. So I have... I have two more brief Senate breakdowns, and then I want to ask you another question. Because, okay, because right. th- these are two these are two races that liberals have have uh, you know pinned at least part of their hopes on. One is in South Carolina, where Lindsey Graham is facing Jamie Harrison, and Jamie Harrison has been just killing it at fundraising. Polls have shown him. Sort of within striking distance. The last poll, it was a Siena New York Times poll. It had Graham up six, which so we've had Graham up six. The most recent poll, Graham up six, uh, Harrison up one, Graham up six, uh, even Harrison up one, Harrison up one. This is going to be a tough hill to climb. I don't think South Carolina is ready for a Democratic senator right now. So it's great to think about Lindsey Graham after four years of kissing Trump's ass. Uh, having it just totally not save him and maybe even cost him his Senate seat. And then there is Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell is up for re-election against Amy McGrath. And the polls there just have not been favorable, but Democrats have been, some Democrats have been trying to talk themselves into it. I don't see a win here. I, I think McConnell will win comfortably. This is Kentucky we're talking about. Kentucky went for Trump by like a million points. And granted, uh, you know, McGrath has not exactly been running as a progressive. I mean, Democrats in Ohio were pissed off that she was running ads in in parts of Kentucky featuring a person who's going to vote for Trump in 2020, but but who's going to vote for McGrath in 2020 and not McConnell. There were Ohio Democrats saying, can you please take this ad to another part of Kentucky because it's airing in our markets? But McConnell is going to win there. And I think Lindsey Graham is going to win in South Carolina. But Ben, I have to to ask you because you brought it up earlier you, you were talking about Lindsey graham being maybe worse than mitch mcconnell you have a choice this year you can have either mitch mcconnell lose his seat or Lindsey graham lose his seat who do you want to lose their seat i take Lindsey graham I, i'd like Lindsey graham to lose his seat because Uh-oh. i think that uh, uh mitch mcconnell is uh is, a, is basically a psychopath who who, who um it's like an unfeeling cynical robot and I think that you know, as I said earlier, that the guy he at least he's open about who he is. You know, he's just a bastard, right? And the fact that um, that 
it doesn't really matter whether he he stays in Kentucky or not, right? Because if McConnell isn't Senate Majority Leader, the, the, he he's irrelevant anyway. So just lo- just the Republicans losing the Senate is enough of a payback to McConnell because it takes away his power. Um, Lindsey Graham, I just yeah, I just like to see the guy punished. I like to see the guy, but I like to see the guy lose um, and and understand what being a Trump sycophant. Uh, means this is the cost of Trumpism. You know, it, it's a destruction of everything. McConnell is more. I believe that McConnell, it, you know, McConnell losing his position um, in the Senate is is more important. It doesn't matter whether he loses or not. Uh, it's it's about losing control of the Senate. But yeah, Lindsey Graham can just lose. I, I'd love to see that. Interesting. I see, yeah. Okay, I could kind of see it. Well, I'm glad I'd I love to see him eat some humble pie. I also think that that Mitch McConnell sort of Mitch McConnell sort of he, he's so cynical that he doesn't even like humble pie is not something that he understands I mean I think he understands that what's about to happen that the Republicans are going to lose uh, he understands this that uh, he's going for a power grab in uh, uh, with, with the Supreme Court he's doing everything on his uh, on the way out to try to screw Biden uh, but I think Lindsey Graham is nowhere near as smart as Mitch McConnell he's nowhere near as ruthless and nowhere near as smart he's just a little dipshit um, and I just like to see him lose. That would be a nice end to 2020 after a year of shit, Trump losing and also Lindsey Graham, his his little lapdog, lapdog Lindsey losing it. But look, the, the Senate map is promising. The Democrats, they're probably going to lose their seat in Alabama, but I think they're going to pick up Arizona, Colorado and Maine. And then you've got a bunch of toss ups in Georgia. You get two of them in Iowa. In Montana, in North Carolina, you know, if Democrats even just win a couple of those, it's it's game over in the U.S. Senate, and they got it back. And then looking ahead to 2022, that map is even more favorable to Democrats than this one. You know, there's a chance here. There there is a chance, assuming there's no election fuckery on the part of the Republicans. There is a chance to take back the Senate. There's a chance to take back the White House. There's a chance to extend the Senate majority in 2022. And if we have big, bold leaders willing to do big, bold things, like, for example, D.C. statehood, Puerto Rico statehood, expanding the size of the judiciary, there's some things we can do here that will alter the course of the country. And demographics are not on the Republican side, like, at all. We can push this party into the wilderness for decades to come if we do this right. Yeah, and I think that's the point here, that, you know, to strike while the iron is hot, if they get the victory this time around, you know, they they need to start moving very very fast to start you know doing things like um, expanding the Supreme Court like ending the filibuster like statehoods for Puerto Rico and DC you know move quickly um, while you've got the power don't worry about the Republican reaction to it I also think that it's worth um, saying that look let's say we don't take the Senate right that would be pretty bad that would would not be great if the Democrats didn't take the Senate but ultimately. You know the house is on fire. Literally, America is burning to the ground right now. The eyes on the the, the main prize is Donald Trump is to get rid of this guy, and that's the one thing. You know, look, I will take a Supreme Court loss. I will take a loss in the Senate as long as we can get rid of this guy in the short term. Because if you don't get rid of this guy, then I think like the American democratic uh, experiment is over. So. You know, the main thing that we need to be concerned about here is is uh, is the presidency. And I think that that's looking very, very good for the Democrats. Very good for Joe Biden. 
Well, the beauty of it is the more people who turn out to kick Trump to the curb, the more likely it is the Democrats will take the Senate. Exactly. But look, I think on that note, I think we're good for uh, the day. We almost finished on a positive note there, Mike. I mean, that's a pretty positive note, I think. We did finish on a positive note. Unbelievable. Uh, if you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure you subscribe to us via email. You can also subscribe to us on Anchor. You can find us on Anchor, type in the Banter Podcast on Anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R. If you are a subscriber to the newsletter, you can also become a, uh, a member where you get access to all of our premium articles and all of our uh, in-depth election coverage. You can get a two-month free trial. Just click on the very nice red big button and it should show you a two-month free offering so please take advantage of that wear a mask please wear a mask please wear a mask we're still in this wretched pandemic and uh, stay tuned for more we'll be back next week